Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great And this week our guest is Steve Tung. Steve is a sports journalist and broadcaster for 45 years. Uh, Steve launched Foul in 1972, which was the first football fanzine. Uh, He's worked for three national newspapers, covered nine World Cups, two Olympic Games, and he's the author of a number of books, including Tough Wars, A History of London Football, Lancashire Tough Wars, A Football History, and the latest one in the series, West Midlands Tough Wars. Uh, Thanks so much for coming along, Steve. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you on, Steve. Um, We've picked out a shoot magazine from the 16th of May. Uh, for you, for us to look at. So we'll, we'll do as we normally do and just start from the front cover. Uh, so the front cover is dominated by a colourful photo which shows Tommy Murray of Carlisle in an all-red kit being challenged by Queen's Park's Tony Hazel. Now it looks as though I think that's Rodney Marsh in the background as well. Uh, and QPR are in their famous blue and white hoop kit. The accompanying uh, caption says that Murray is shrugging off a tackle. And it does look as though there's been a bit of contact that's taken place. Um, the pitch, while flat, does look bereft of the green stuff. So I think that's probably a bit later on in the season. Tommy Murray, he was a Scottish footballer who played with Airdrie and Hearts, with Kaleo sandwiched in between. Uh, he also had a spell in Australia before returning to Scotland and playing for a Broth and Wraith Rovers. Uh, the other, the QPR player picture, Tony Hazel, played 369 league games for QPR before moving to Millwall in 1974, where he'd spend the next four years. He then moved to Palace before finishing up at Charlton between 79 and 81. Now, the headings on the front page are George at his best in full colour, which is a two-page spread inside, with photos of Man United's George Best. We'll have a look at that. What's What in Football, a fact-filled series that every fan will want to collect. This is part one of A Football A to Z. This week obviously focuses on the letter A. And the cover price is one shilling, the equivalent of 12 pence at the time. Uh, so it's, it's a very colourful front page photo. Is there anything we can we want to look at or spot from there? Well, I'm guessing because Carlisle are in red rather than blue, that it's actually taken at Loftus Road, where uh, it would mean, looking up that year, that they were playing towards the end of March, um, it will be a second division game because QPR, having got to the first division, of course, for the first time in their history, had had a disastrous season and been relegated uh, straight away after one year. And it wasn't a particularly successful season, this 69 to 70 for either team. They were both in the middle of the table. And so I suspect that the goalless draw at Loftus Road was not the most exciting game of the season. Um, Tony Hazel, of course, uh, became quite famous in another way in that 
uh, Terry Venables would have played in that QPR team. He was at Rangers at the same time. And Terry, uh, a man, of course, who always wanted to try different things, very innovative in many ways, and uh, ended up writing books with Gordon Williams, the Scottish author, um, wrote the very futuristic novel they used to play on grass, uh, which, of course, looked ahead many years before it actually happened to a time when league football was played on artificial pitches, uh, and ironically, of course, in, in the first place at, um, at QPR, at Loftus Road. Uh, and when uh, Gordon Williams and Terry then turned to detective fiction, uh, they titled their character Hazel, uh, with exactly the same spelling, a male character, a male Hazel, not a female one. And uh, I think we can tell uh, from that photo and from QPR at the time exactly where they got the title from and, and became very successful. Gordon Williams, I'm sure uh, people uh, would have heard of. Um, the author, of course, of Straw Dogs, famously. Oh, yeah. The novel on which the film was, was based. So, yes, Tony Hazel, uh, quite a character in his own way. As you say, quite a bit of a 1970s challenge. There's an <laughs> arm on the shoulder and the knee going into the side uh, and uh, quite an uh, aggressive old 70s defender. Uh, of what was nevertheless one of my favourite teams of the period. They, they were on their way down a little bit at that time, having got relegated. But uh, in my London book, I actually suggested they were possibly the best third division team of all time. And the team that uh, got to the Football League Cup final, the first one at Wembley in 67, when they uh, came back to beat West Brom at the top division after being 2-0 down. It was a, a terrific team with Rodney Marsh, the Morgan twins on the wing, and Mark Lazarus and, and Tony Hazel at the back as well. Uh, a, a really good third division team who, who were terrific entertainers as well. Sadly, by 1970, as I say, just uh, on the way down and, and players like Rodney Marsh, of course, would be moved on. Let's uh, jump inside then, onto pages two and three. So in this way, have readers have a chance, a last chance to vote for the most exciting player of the year and are advised to turn to page 32 and vote today. Uh, everything's with exclamation marks, obviously, to stress the point. Uh, the trophy for the winner is shown, and we'll take a look at this later in the magazine. Now, over the rest of the pages, two and three, is a feature called Shooting Around, which is compiled by Howard Elson. This features a number of small, smaller stories from around football in the UK. Would Howard Elson be a name that you recognise? Not me, no. There are one or two later on uh, mm -hmm. who I knew quite well, contributors, uh, journalistic contributors. Um, the, the story that jumped out at me really was the record-making soccer star, yeah. uh, the Aston Villa player Dick Edwards, uh, who had just cut a disc, um, his debut disc, uh, one million miles away, mm -hmm. uh, giving up for, considering giving up football to become a pop singer. Um, I did actually check my Guinness Book of Hit Singles and I'm afraid One Million Miles Away appears to have ended up One Million Miles Away from the charts because he didn't quite make it and uh, he didn't actually have much of a career after that. He, um, he went on to Torquay and then came back to Mansfield. Uh, Villa, of course, were interesting at that time because um, having throughout nearly all of my youth been a, a top first division side, um, and one of the great names in English football got relegated not just to the second division, but then to the third division uh, when Tommy Doherty was the manager, which got him the sack uh, and was really a sensation at the time that a, a club like Villa should go down and ironically were relegated along with Preston North End, another of the, the great names of English football. You know, the, the first ever 
season of the Football League, Preston and, and Aston Villa, the top two in uh, in the Football League. And uh, my the latest book you mentioned, I've done the West Midlands book, quotes uh, Aston Villa at the turn of the century, the end of the 19th century. They were being talked about as the biggest football club in the world. Of course, there weren't all that many leagues around the world. And, and unfortunately... There, there weren't any games in which they could prove it, unlike later when they won the European Cup and could actually compete for the World Club Championship. But Villa were, at that time, they were definitely the biggest club in England in terms of playing success. And they still had that, that lovely stadium, which became the current uh, Villa Park, and clearly were a huge club. So it, it's difficult to underestimate uh, all this, what are we on, 50 years on, difficult to underestimate what a shock it was when, when Villa should go down to the third division. And, and indeed didn't get back immediately. It took them two seasons to get back. Um, but when they did, they were, you know, they were shown to be much too good for the third division. I think they had one crowd of either 46,000 or 48,000 in the third division, which is, must be very close to the record for the third division. But Dick um, Edwards, I'm afraid, didn't, didn't, it says uh, Aston Villa had paid £30,000 for it two years ago, which in those days was, was still a reasonable fee. Mm. Um, but he, he didn't really make much of a name, either as a footballer or, sadly, as a pop singer. I, I looked him up as well, and apparently he was a country musician. It says he was a country musician, and he actually made the number one in the American country charts in 1988. Um, and he's right. yeah, so he, he's still recently he was performing with his two sons in a band as well. And it mentions that he released a song called War Cry while he was at Tur- Turkey as well, which was a Turkey's song. Um, so that was in 1972, so this, that was a couple of years after this, this article, this magazine. So he obviously did move on from Aston Villa to Turkey. American country charts in 1988. I tried to find a copy of it and see what it was like, but I couldn't. I couldn't find that. I'm afraid there, there was a, a good few articles on him, being you know more recent articles on his um, his singing history as well. So he's he's managed he managed to make it a little bit over in the states. So well done to him. I think. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. Um, the other one to point out here. Um, just go back one here we go so for sale one football team so i wanted to have a look at this one so fourth division chester have put all their players up for sale in order to keep their heads above water secretary mr s gandhi says at present we need seven thousand pound to break even however he doesn't anticipate having to sell the entire team but does think that they will have to sell at least three and it shows a photo of the goalkeeper terry carling and he would move to Macclesfield in 1971, so the following year. So it looks as though the goalkeeper was one of the ones to, to go away and help save the, the club or keep the club going. So I thought that was interesting, just basically putting up the entire team and saying, listen, you know, we need to sell three of them. I guess Chester are one of these teams that have, you know, that's the, the sort of area of finances that they, they're generally uh, around. Um, but I thought that was quite interesting as well. Yeah, they, they weren't the worst. I mean, they, they finished halfway up the league that season in the fourth division and uh, the crowds I looked up were about 4,500 and there were a lot in worse, worse states than them. Mm. But um, that, that was always the problem of, uh, of, of that sort of level, of course. Um, I don't know how many players they did end up selling, but, uh, but they survived for a while. And actually within, I think, four or five years of this, about 1975, they, they got promoted back up to the third division. But they've always been one of those... 
for quite a big, uh, you know, quite a, a reasonable city, um, maybe haven't achieved what they should have. The latest controversy, I don't know if you caught that, was um, because the stadium is literally part of it in England and part of it in Wales. They've been having a great row about COVID restrictions <laughs> because, of course, in Wales, they're, uh, until next week at least, they're allowing no supporters in at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, Wales were claiming that they shouldn't be allowing any fans in because the ground was in Wales. And Chester were claiming that because the main entrance is in England, they should be entitled to get some supporters in, which, of course, they're desperate to do. So they are one of one of those teams who've, uh, who've often been on the brink in, uh, in many different ways. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard that, but that's, that's quite a, an interesting one as well. Uh, next one is Jimmy Greaves. It's shooter pointing out that in six league games for West Ham last season, he scored a total of four goals, whereas in the Spurs... 28 games previous to that, he scored twice as many goals. So I guess they're just pointing out that he's, you know, scoring more goals for West Ham. Um, what's your memories of Jimmy? Well, happened to be at White Hart Lane for one of his greatest goals, which was often shown on TV at the, at the time that sadly he passed away, which was the one against Manchester United, where he, he picked up the ball with his back to goal very close to to the halfway line and seemed to go through most of the Manchester United team before going around the goalkeeper and scoring. That that was a, I mean, a great day for Spurs. They beat a very good United team 5-1 that day. And that was when he was in his pomp. That was probably 64, 65. By 1970 and the move to West Ham, he was unfortunately on, on the way down. I mean, it, it was a part exchange deal, if you remember, for Martin Peters mm -hmm. and Spurs undoubtedly got the better of that deal and Martin Peters, as I think we'll see later in some of the transfer fees, was uh, was rated much more highly in terms of the money. Um, Jimmy had, had started drinking pretty heavily, I think, at that time. And while he had maybe this this one or two good seasons for, for West Ham and, and could always be relied on to knock in a few goals, as it says, uh, he was sadly well past his peak. And and ended up playing for some quite small teams around London just for the love of the game. People like Woodford Town and Barnet, who, who people might know a bit more about, um, just to keep on going. But mm. sadly, he was he was on the downward spiral, in, in personally and professionally, really, by this time almost. Yeah. So the next one in the page, you've already touched on it. It's talking about Aston Villa's um, average crowd and saying, although relegated from Division 2 last season, they boasted the best average crowd of the whole division at just over 27,000, which is remarkable, isn't it? It's, even looking at Huddersfield and Blackpool, which they say just over 16,000 each, I think they'd be pretty happy with those sort of crowds these days. Yeah, they would these days. I mean, those were the two promoted clubs, as you say, Huddersfield and Blackpool. Um, and, you know, it did, it did illustrate the, the pulling power of Villa even um, at that time. And as I say, in, in, they would have got bigger crowds in, in the third division for both seasons because inevitably no team, people would rather go and see a, a winning team mm. as they were generally in the third division than one struggling at the bottom. Um, wasn't enough to save old Tommy Doherty, but um, but it, it did very well for them in the in the third division. And, and their average, I haven't checked it, but their average crowd that season when they won the championship two years later at the third division must must have been very close to a record for that division so the last one i'm going to look at on these two pages is the title says celtic's big hitting bomber explodes onto the scene and it's a fresh-faced lou mccary who's pictured and he's at celtic and it says he's just broken through from the celtic reserves the previous season having scored 42 goals in total now i presume 
that most of those are for the reserves because when I checked, they'd only scored nine goals for the first team, so they must be including the reserve goals in that as well. Um, does that sound about right, Tom? Yeah, that's what I was what I was looking at. I think he scored. Uh, he only scored about fifty six goals in his whole Celtic career. So yeah, I would assume that they were including reserve yeah. goals. Yeah. Can I say Lewis Macari? I believe we should uh, Louis Macari maybe as his as his uh, title. He obviously wasn't all that well known. Oh. The uh, the five foot five dynamo. Um, I think by that time they they probably still had a good view of the of the Lisbon Lions, didn't they? Uh, playing uh, Jimmy Johnston and Wallace and Lennox and people. Um, and they just won the title again for about the fifth year running. Uh, and it does so does it say he scored the goal in the semi final, in the cup semi final? Yeah. And I think he got on uh, in the final, which, which then actually rather surprisingly, perhaps they lost to Aberdeen. But uh, one of the things I, I didn't know about him for many years was that although he was born in Aberdeen, he came to London at a very young age, uh, you know, only about one year old, which may explain why he doesn't really have a, that Scottish accent at all. Um, and oddly or ironically uh, ended up living very close to Upton Park where of course he then later became a manager of um, of West Ham um, a great career of course after Celtic got the chance to go to either Man United or Liverpool and, and settled for United um, with Tommy Doherty I think at the time um, and then a, a very reasonable uh, managerial career West Ham, Swindon uh, and Stoke, and funnily enough, just been reading about him this week in um, none other than the big issue. Because I don't know if people know, he does this terrific work yeah. uh, with the homeless in Stoke, and it was um, it was concentrating on that. Uh, not only takes in homeless people, but he's got a whole place with different individual pods uh, that they can sleep in, um, and is is doing terrific work there in Stoke. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable the the work that he puts in. That you know. As you sort of touched on there, a lot of people don't know about it, which I guess, you know, that that's not why he does it. But um, really, a lot of people should know about it and know the, the, the work that he does put in for that. But you, you pointed out that it says Lewis McCarry there. I, I didn't even spot that. And normally I'm an eagle eye with these sort of things. So thanks for pointing that out to me. Um, but what's interesting about the article, it suggests that he, Celtic almost lost them to Wolves because they hadn't offered them a like a full-time contract um, but as soon as Wills came I think um, it, it basically kicked Celtic into into you know making a move and saying okay we're going to offer you and the rest is history so we'll move on to pages four and five and this is Bobby Moore writes for you um, it says the season ends but the game goes on soccer is an all-year-round sport now the West Ham's Bobby Moore talks about how footballers no longer have a prolonged period off in the summer between seasons. He mentions that he and some of his teammates had to take jobs mending roads and unloading lorries during the summer break to make up the wages from the club, which were reduced during the period. Nowadays the football never stops, says Bobby, from the World Cup, club and international tours and coaching abroad. They now have only a few weeks in the summer to relax with their families. They also pay his tribute to the hard-working British groundsmen who performed miracles to get the pitches back to perfection in time for the new season. And he also finally mentions that players generally don't have a clue what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to the comings and goings of players. Um, it's one of the things that Tom and I, you know, we go through a lot of these magazines from different period, and um, it's they're quite open 
back then players were quite open about talking about the game, about talking about what happens in it. You know, nowadays it's it's all, you know, it's a sort of, as I'm sure you're aware, that it's like the stock answers that you get, um, it's cliches and things like that. But the great thing about back here was you could actually learn a bit about what actually goes on in the game. And, uh, you know, it was absolutely fascinating to hear that these players are out digging up roads and loading loading vehicles and stuff like that. That's, that's inc- I mean, we know for a fact that wouldn't happen nowadays. No, it was an interesting piece. And, and from somebody who really was never a great controversialist, um, I'm, I'm sure you've uh, you've come across many of these sort of ghosted columns in, mm. in the magazine because they were a staple part of it. I, I think, I think I'm right that Goal magazine started about a year before shoot. Goal got Bobby Charlton, yeah. another another person who really wasn't ever going to be say anything terribly controversial, but but if he could be brought out a bit, would have interesting things to say nevertheless and factual things. Um, I suspect Bob might have been quite hard work to get a. I mean, it's quite a big two page spread in there, and he might have been hard work some some weeks to get too much out of. Uh, but it, it was an interesting piece. I, I came across him quite a lot in his, in his later years when, of course, he was a radio pundit. He worked for Capital Gold, the, uh, the mainly London station. So I'd often see him in the London press boxes. Uh, I mean, lovely man, um, almost goes without saying. Um, but again, and, and became quite a decent radio pundit. But again, not somebody who was ever really going to make, make headlines. Um, but, but as I'm sure, again, you, you notice from these old magazines and, and we'll see later, even in this issue, there are topics which come up again and again, like the amount of, of, of football that people have to play. He talks about Wolves and West Ham and others going over to tournaments in America in, in the close season rather than having a long break and so on. Um, and and other, other features which, which we'll come across later. Hmm. Okay, so moving on, um, there's a quick quiz here, and I'm going to just pick out one of these questions because it it will give an idea of how difficult this quiz could be. So the question is, the the name of a First Division club can be found from the following four words. See if you can find it. And the words are wet, used, ham, tin. I mean, one of the words hasn't even been changed, has it? So I think... (laughs) Like wet ham was a pretty good clue, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Also, when when any quiz where the uh, where the answers are printed at the bottom of the page, even when it's upside down, you, you do tend to do do quite well. I see whoever's done this quiz claims to have got about sixteen out of twenty, so they've done pretty well. But how legitimate that was, we we will never know. Yeah. On to page seven, views from the stars. So this is three three top soccer personalities talk about changes they would welcome in the game. I think that's that's an interesting phrase to use, personalities. Um, I don't know that we would use that nowadays. So the three personalities are Liverpool's Peter Thompson, Arsenal's Bob Wilson, Leicester's, Leicester City's David Nish. And I'm going to pick out a, couple, a few of the questions. Um, Peter Thompson, so the first question that I'm going to look at is how do you think the present transfer system could be improved? Peter Thompson believes the transfer market has gone crazy and that if it's players who, who who do not remain loyal to a club who are being rewarded. He'd like to see those who remain loyal being compensated. Bob Wilson reckons a spending cap should be placed on clubs and David Nish is pragmatic, saying that the reason the prices are so high is there are so many clubs and so few players 
It's a case of demand and supply. Look at the next one. What single change would you make in soccer? Peter Thompson suggests that he would like to see fewer games. Bob Wilson would like professional referees and more ex-players going into the refereeing. And David Nish would like more consistency in refereeing, possibly echoing Bob Wilson's comments. Uh, number four, do you think suspension should be imposed for a period of games or as present days? And we all agree that it should be a period of games. And the last one I'm going to look at is what has been the most significant change in soccer during the 1960s? Peter Thompson references the fact that players no longer wear a fixed number based on their position and fans have had to educate themselves on this. Bob Wilson thinks there are now more players in the team capable of playing in the general attacking and defending position rather than the fixed position. He says that the goalkeeper and centre-back are the only two old-school positions that remain. And David Nish bemoans the loss of wingers, which he puts down to Sir Alf Ramsey, as other clubs have followed his lead. So I guess there's a few themes throughout that, isn't there? Um, about refereeing, I mean, the, we could we could ask the same questions today and we'll get the same answers from that. Um, refereeing, uh, the interesting one is about players playing in specific, and, and I've all, you know, this has come up quite a few times and I always find it fascinating that it, it confused people when players wore a different number in a different position from what they were playing and that, that just seems really alien as opposed to us nowadays um, but I, I, yeah, yeah. I think there was in, in terms of the media there was very little um, comment or coverage about tactical tactical things in those days partly because uh, the papers in those if you look at the very old newspapers they had so little space compared to what there is today I mean there weren't any 24 page football supplements on a Saturday or a, a Monday that, that people had to fill yeah. um, and so there was no there was very little sophistication I think among football fans and and they they expected that shirt numbers actually meant something and that you had number five you were a, a big centre half who played at the back and if, as Peter Thompson says if you were seven or eleven you played on the wing mm. if you were seven you were supposed to be on the right and if you were eleven you're supposed to be on the left and if you were, were found somewhere else fans wanted to know what was going on um, yeah, so that, that was an interesting one. I, I thought, actually, those three players were, were quite a good choice. So Bob Wilson, of course, went on to become a, a professional media pundit. And David Nish, I always thought, was, uh, was one of the talks about supply and demand and the transfer market and so on. Whereas the other two just moan, as, as people had from the year dot, about crazy transfer prices like they did when the first player was transferred for £1,000. And everyone said, this is terrible, where will it all stop? Um, David, no, David Nish, I thought was was quite good on that, and and what I was referring to earlier was that you know so many of these of these sort of questions could still be asked today, mm. and obviously on the price of transfers, people be saying exactly the same thing. Um, so some some of them get changed, but uh, but not many. Bob Wilson, I'm sure would uh, would still have wanted his professional referees, which we which we're not got either. Mm. The, the 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 last one. Um about Sir Alf Ramsey, so saying that the chain, the loss of wingers, that's been mentioned a few times throughout the magazine as well, and I have yes, heard about I that before. So, you know, a lot of people weren't happy about how how that changed the game in England. No, that's right. And uh, one of the things we'll note as we go further through the magazine was, of course, this was just in the run-up to the 1970 World Cup, um, at, at which point England were not really using wingers at all. 
Um, in 66, as, as people generally know, he, he actually tried three different wingers in the in the group matches and wasn't convinced by any of them. And, and so basically put Alan Ball and Martin Peters in there as much more functional modern midfield players and, and was convinced that, that, that we just didn't have the wingers to make it work. Whereas a lot of players in Scotland, you still had your Jimmy Johnstons and your George Best in Northern Ireland and other countries still did have them but Ramsey for better or for worse was convinced that, that we didn't and of course it's come and gone since then and, and in many ways they've made a comeback although with the slight difference I suppose that these, these days they're all expected to have defensive duties to do as well. Mm. So the next page has two adverts in it. I'm just going to quickly look at them. First one is for soccer prints, and you can buy posters of individual players or teams for four shillings or six shillings. And the two team posters that are shown are West Brom and Man United. I guess things like that, there wouldn't have been a huge deal of merchandise really to choose from at this this sort of point. point. Um, more was coming in, but um, things like this would have been absolute manna from heaven for, for kids back then, I guess. Yeah, some good old names on there. Um, Bobby Tambling and Roger Hunt and Bobby Charlton and Jimmy Greaves. And interesting one at the bottom, Peter Knowles, who a lot of uh, younger listeners may not remember at all because, of course, having had a few good seasons and been a very talented player for Wolves, he suddenly decided he was going to retire and become a Jehovah's Witness, mm. which was extraordinary. And everyone at Wolves was convinced that he, he would soon be back playing for them, but he stuck it out and... In fact, I read a very recent interview with him in which he said he never regretted it for a moment. Um, so he he continued along, along that path. And other interesting, one little one I noticed on the, uh, the teams was that in alphabetical order, they go Arsenal, Albion, Chelsea, because West Bromwich Albion, as mentioned above, the Manchester United poster there had, had decided, I think almost for that reason, uh, for alphabetical reasons, that they would drop the West Bromwich briefly um, because rather like the teams who style themselves AFC, Bournemouth or Wimbledon or someone, you, um, you've got some sort of kudos by being further up the alphabet. I suppose actually they should have been ahead of Arsenal, shouldn't they, if they were doing it alphabetically. Mm. Um, but that, that, that didn't last all that long. But uh, some you know, good familiar faces there, look like Jeff Astle and Albion, of course, holding up the FA Cup from 1968. And what stands out, I suppose, from Man United, apart from the obvious faces like Laura Best and Charlton, was uh, manager at that time, Wilf McGuinness, actually with hair, which, of course, um, all dropped out, poor man, once um, once the pressure of managing Manchester United got to him. Uh, still a very popular figure around Old Trafford, became a, a United pundit, doing a lot of stuff for local radio and, and local TV up there, but... Uh, with, with no hair whatsoever. It was perhaps the most graphic example ever of what the, the pressures of football management can do to a man, sadly. Mm. Was it is it Peter Knowles that you mentioned there? Was, was that the one? Peter uh, Knowles, was, yeah. Was yeah. it him that they kept his contract? Was that, was that yes, yeah. yes, because as I say, they were, you know, I think it was, was it Bill McGarry at the time who was the manager? They, they were convinced that, you know, nobody would seriously give up professional football to uh, go and knock on people's doorsteps, um, telling them about Jehovah. Um, and, and he just, he just carried on doing it and, and, and never regretted it. And he, he was a lovely player. He was really flamboyant, sort of inside forward. He would score some great goals. I remember one, 
I don't know, it's funny, the things that do stick in your mind. Uh, a game they showed, an FA Cup game they showed at Portsmouth, that he scored this fantastic goal, just picked the ball up and, and almost literally kicked it out of the ground as a celebration. He, he really had that bit of flamboyance, was, was a real entertainer. Hmm. Um, it was just a, a real a real shock when he, he suddenly disappeared. But, you know, to his credit, he, he stuck to his guns. Hmm. Fair play to him, fair play to him. So the, the second advert on this page is Elsie's for All Sports. This is um, Elsie Sports in Tottenham, London. And it's boys' football team outfits and colours of famous clubs. Football's 18 or 32 panel laceless balls. Uh, goalkeeper outfits. Superb nylon tracksuits and supporters bags. And as you would expect, they're, they're all drawings rather than any sort of photographs of the, the gear that you're, you're going to be buying. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that they're referring to the balls as laceless is sort of aging it as well, I guess. The pair of Puma boots on the, the goalkeeper by the looks of it. Is is Elsie Sport, would that would that have been a well-known shop back then? Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by the address uh, for a reason I'll, I'll tell you, which is that you mentioned that I started a magazine called Foul, and uh, the original concept... Um, was that it, it would be given away free at matches? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the first game that we that we had in mind was a game at Tottenham. So I spent a lot of time traipsing up and down, literally that road, the high road, Tottenham, selling, um, selling, trying to sell adverts. Uh, and I must have missed a trick because I don't <laughs> think Elsie Sports featured in it. But some very strange little shops in Tottenham High Road did, and in the end, we decided it was it just didn't work to try and give the magazine away. So we sold it for the princely sum of five pence instead. Um, but the point you made earlier was good about uh, about the sort of marketing of sport um, and the fact that this is a private company rather than rather than any of the clubs. I mean, the clubs at that time, as far as I remember, were, were pretty hopeless about actual merchandising. Mm-hmm. Um, and boys, as it says, it's, it is very much marketed at boys and their football team outfits. Um, and, and there were plenty of boys at that time, you know, who would have loved to have had a, a strip in their own their own team colours, even though you, you didn't really you didn't really wear them to matches, I think. I mean, anybody mm-hmm. wearing a shirt to a match in those days would have got a lot of strange looks and people asking him what position are you playing son and that sort of thing it wasn't really the done thing yeah. unlike these days but uh, it was just surprising in a way that the, the, the clubs took so long to realise if, if nothing else how much money there was to be made from this as, as we see today but mm. from all the big clubs and the, the fantastic superstores which they all have and so on well, I guess it would have it would have taken them probably close to another decade to actually start Doing things properly. I mean, that would have been the least. I, I think so, at least, yes. And uh, where, where are we? United The only thing, the contrast. In contrast to it, I always remember. I was very surprised that my first kit I was able to get in about the late 1950s. Uh, it happened to be a Wolverhampton Wanderers kit, of which to, a club to which I had no affinity whatsoever. But I obviously said I'd like a football kit for either Christmas or birthday. And uh, somehow my parents managed to find a sports shop. We were living in the Midlands at the time, and so Wolves, it could have been Wolves, or I suppose it could perhaps have been Villa. But it was that it was that rather nice old Wolves kit of the old gold and the black corset. It was in those days, it was a big heavy kit with a big collar and long sleeves and so on. Yeah. But it was, I've actually got the photo uh, of, of me, age six or seven, 
in this small wolves kit. And I was, I was a bit surprised looking back that even in those days you could get them. But again, it would have been very definitely from a sports shop rather than rather than from a club. Um, and I remember similarly trying to buy a, a Lake Norient, come on to Orient later, who, who happened to have been my club always. Uh, I remember years later trying to get a, a Lake Norian shirt and not only would the club not sell anything like that, but it, it was really hard even from quite local sports outfitters to uh, to find one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, on the next page, there's a black and white uh, photo of Rangers Colin Steen in action against Cameron Murray of St Mirren. Now, Murray holds the record for the consecutive appearances for St Mirren. Uh, while Colin Steen, who started at Hibs before moving to Rangers in 1968, then went south with Coventry City in 72 before returning to Rangers in 1975. He made 21 Scotland appearances, scoring nine times. Is Colin Steen someone you remember when he was down in England, or maybe even up in Scotland? Yeah, very much. Um, Cameron Murray, I'm afraid, wasn't. But no, Colin Steen, I would associate with Coventry um, in two or three seasons there. I think, I mean, a very good uh, scoring record for, for Scotland, in particular in the home internationals, in that the few games we used to get on television always featured the home internationals. I mean, you would get the FA Cup final, and then generally they, by this time, the home international championship was always played at the end of the season, and they would show almost every game. And and so, obviously, Scotland-England was the big one. Um but you would see those games, and um, yeah, his record in the in the home internationals, I think, was was quite spectacular. Um, the other thing I noted about him was it for, scoring four goals for Scotland once in a in a World Cup qualifier, I think, against Cyprus, and uh, the last the last hat trick for Scotland, I think, for a very long time, mm. 40, 45, 46 years. Um, yeah. But um, yes, I, I think I think a decent a decent spell at, uh, at Coventry would be quite um, quite well remembered there. Before, as you say, going going back to Scotland. Yeah, moving on to page ten, we've got ask the expert, and they're going to pick a couple out. So this is the first mention of Orient, Leighton Orient, or Clapton Orient at the time. And so the question from David Taylor from East Ham in London is: Has a league match ever been played at Wembley? So the the reply from Shoot is yes. Orient, then known as Clapton Orient, played Brentford and Southend at Wembley in in the Third Division South in 1930-31 season during a period when their own ground was not available. Well, David Taylor, coming from East Ham in London, should have known that. Um, He was obviously a West Ham fan rather than an Orient fan. Um, There was a bizarre episode in which Orient... uh, playing at Clapton, Clapton Orient in the 1930s, had a complaint from one of the opposition. Uh, it may have been once they just moved to one of their new grounds in Clapton that the pitch wasn't wide enough or similar. Um, and so they were allowed to play these two games at Wembley, which may have been a mixed blessing. Um, playing Brentford, which of course is a club quite close to Wembley, they, they got a decent crowd. They got about 8,000 for that game. But then they played South End soon afterwards and the crowd was about 1,900. Mm-hmm which even in the Wembley of 1930 was <laughs> would have looked pretty pretty sparse crowd. Uh, but they did win both games, I have to say, which is good. And uh, whenever we mention Orient in this conversation, they are just Orient at this stage in 1970. Yeah. Um, they've been late in Orient, of course, when they moved at the end of the uh, Second World War. 
but then had a row with the local council, Leighton Council, and uh, as a sort of retaliation said, we're not going to be Leighton anymore, we're going to be playing Orient. Uh, and that went on for a, a few years into the early 70s uh, when they got got their Leighton back. But, um, yeah, David Taylor, as I say, really should have known that uh, that the O's were at Wembley, not been there back there many times soon and they've since, and uh, they've got a terrible record when they do in, in playoffs and uh, the FA Trophy very, very most recently, what uh, the defeat we had to suffer, but uh, it's still it's still a, a record. Of course, Spurs um, Spurs did so as well when they're um, when they were in between moving stadiums um, played played there quite a bit. But the o, the O's were there first. Mm. Arsenal was just in the Champions League, was it? Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. I remember Arsenal playing Champions League um, presumably before they went to the Emirates. Um, uh, yes, I remember that, and, and mm. getting very good crowds there, sort of 60, 60, 70,000 there as well. Um, but the others were the first. So, so talking about the, the name there, how does it sit with um, fans of the club? Or is it just so long ago, like Clapton Orient, Orient, Leighton Orient? Is it is it okay that there's been these name changes? or the? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, they were... You know, both Clapton and Leighton were um, were the districts in which they were playing. They're not far apart, only only a few miles apart in East London, um, and they they started in in Clapton, um, and and say had this row and and dropped the name altogether before coming back to to Leighton Orient. Um, as interesting is why the name Orient, um, in the hashtag only one Orient, is quite popular with uh, with Orient supporters, and it actually came from, effectively, from the P and O Orient shipping line because the uh, some of the earliest members who started the club worked for the uh, the firm which became P and O, uh, and so they decided Orient was um, was a little more interesting than Clapton Town or Clapton City or whatever. Um, and and they have apart from one very small club somewhere who claimed that they were Orient as well, and so it wasn't only one Orient. They've obviously remained the um, the I rather like Aston Villa with that um, with that distinctive name. Hmm. It's, it's you know when, when you just explained that, I thought to myself, I've never actually. It's never occurred to me why they called that, and I guess that's no, you don't you don't do you. It's one of the sort of things you take for granted sometimes without. Um, yeah. Without, um, unless you get a feature called something like "Strange but True" in these um, in yeah. these magazines, where they they explain some of these things that you really never thought of. But mm. no, it would have been uh, no. it would have been very much the uh, the same for many people, I'm sure. Mm. Okay, so on, one of the other uh, letters that's been sent in is John Dinsdale, is the vice chairman of Halifax Town Young Supporters Club. And he wants to know who is the final word in the naming of goal scorers. The shoot says there's no official record of the names of goal scorers. The referee is only concerned with the number of goals, not the goal scorers. The names that appear in the papers have been supplied by the reporters at the match. And um, uh, fascinating to to know that at this point there wasn't uh, an official record of it, or you know you didn't have to supply that information. No, and and very frustrating uh, if you're you're writing these sort of history books that I do. Um, you know, frequently, who's it could even be who scored the first ever goal for Aston Villa or some major club or something. I mean, quite a, mm. uh, 
something quite notable like that. And and to be honest, in the, in the early newspaper reports of the time, uh, which I love ploughing through online, you get them online these days. Um, frequently, you read uh, there was a scramble and the ball was put between the posts. <laughs> and, and you know, you wonder from that all these club statisticians do do claim to have got all the scorers from every season and so on. And, and own goals is, a, again, a classic. Um, you know, we seem to have come to some sort of agreement these days that if the ball is going in anyway, you give it to the goal scorer, whereas if it was maybe going wide or going high or something, that, that, that it counts as an own goal hmm. if it's not something more deliberate. Um, but it, it is one of the things which... which uh, infuriate statisticians I'm sure down the league and and as you say 1970 uh, which by the way is the sort of time I still think of as quite recent um, up until 1970 people still were still arguing about them yeah I, I was um, I was curious about the the name John Dinsdale and I, I realise it's a, it's a Yorkshire it must be a Yorkshire name but I was wondering if it was maybe related to Reese Dinsdale you know Reese Dinsdale who was, oh yeah yeah so, um, but yes. who's, a, who's a Huddersfield Town supporter? So certainly the same neck of the woods. Yes, no, good point. I would I'll try and look that up for my my next book, which is about Yorkshire. So Halifax right, okay. and uh, Halifax and Huddersfield will be well represented. I will mm. check out Reese Dinsdale. <laughs> Excellent. Um, on to page eleven. Hinton's free kicks are costly to opponents. So this is about Derby County's Alan Hinton, and there's a nice picture of him um, delivering a ball. And it says, watch Alan Hinton of Derby County take a corner kick and you watch a master. He swings them with slide rule accuracy just under the bar. Everyone a nightmare to defenders. The ball comes over hard at first, then curves slowly and in goal. He also takes all the penalties and didn't miss one during the season. Hinton also reckons he takes 99% of the free kicks. Now manager Brian Clough says, there is no better player in the game at getting the ball away to advantage when under pressure than Alan Hinton. No matter how tight a spot he finds himself in, he always finds a man with his parting pass. Hinton doesn't take all the credit for the goals that have come from his delivery, saying a lot of success is due to the way in which the players run off the ball. Uh, so Alan he played for Wolves, Forest, Derby County before moving to the States and has three England caps and one goal. He's always played, well, mostly played on the left wing. And I wonder, just looking at that photo as well, which is my sort of image of him on his right foot, I wonder if he was one of those, the earliest players who actually played on, on the side, which wasn't his natural foot. Um, the disappointment in that photo for me is he hasn't got his white boots on, because he's mm. definitely one of those players like Alan Ball, who was among the first to uh, to wear the white boots. But he did, um, no, he did become a, a, a very decent winger. And one of, we mentioned the, the lack of wingers slightly at the time, but he was one of those who, who kept going even... Uh, even four years after England's World Cup win. And um, Cluffy clearly was was the manager who got the best out of him. It was a very good uh, Nottingham Forest team that he played for in about 67. They, they were actually runners-up to, to Manchester United in the league and got to the Cup semi-final. I think we're going to see a photo of them, of them later when they were just mm. in decline a little bit, but still had some very good players. Um, yeah, he was, he was definitely one of those who, uh, like John Robertson, uh, took a player who, other managers hadn't rated quite so much and, and got the best out of him in, in the same position. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on to a two-page spread with colourful, and it's very colourful, it's the men for Mexico. And it's some of the players that will be going to Mexico with England for the World Cup, where England will be defending their crown. 
Now first up is Martin Peters of Spurs and he's decked in an all red England kit and he's dealing down to tie shoelaces. I'm I'm guessing that that kit's pretty much like the 66 kit apart from the red shorts is added to it. Would that be right or is it significant? Yes, I don't remember all that uh, wearing that kit all that time. Um, but yes, they've got Eminem Hughes uh, moving on in, in the same strip as well. So mm. uh, it, it was very much the, the second two. I think most yeah, England, I think, were probably uh, happy to have just the two kits in those days rather than these days where you never know what uh, what they're going to turn out in. And and the red was the, of course, red uh, in the World Cup final, but with white shorts. Um, though fashion had moved on far enough for them to be uh, all in red shirt, shorts and socks by then. Yeah. So you mentioned Emily Hughes there. The other photographs are of uh, Jack Charlton, and I'm assuming that's going to be his Leeds United. I mean, it could be the White England kit, but it's hard yeah, to, that looks hard like to say. Yeah. Um, and Peter Benetti, who what I, what I miss from the game is goalkeepers wearing outfield shorts and socks, which he is wearing here for Chelsea, and just with a, a red top. So I, I miss it. I mean, goalkeepers now just wear the all same colour, isn't it? It's it's one of those things that's just came into the game, and I think I, I like where goalkeepers um, had outfield um, kit as well. Um, but in the in the there's a little article as well, and there's mentioned that Sir, Sir Alf Ramsey says about Martin Peters that he'll have an important role at the competition, um, and also where Peter Benetti it says that he's had his international appearances limited because of the brilliant form of Gordon Banks, but is a great keeper to call on if needed. Now, as we know from that World Cup, Peter Benetti did get his chance due to. Well, food poisoning, I think it was with um, Gordon Banks, wasn't it? Whereas Martin Peters played in all three of the the first the group games, and he would um, score in the second half against West Germany. I think they were playing with so England were two 0 up, and as we know, Peter Benetti didn't have his his greatest of um, games, and England went on to lose three two that game so from 2-0 up they lost 3-2 to West Germany I think um, Ramsey took him off at 2-0, 2-0 up I think Yes, it's, it's a day I remember very well because um, 1970 this May 1970 I was um, I was coming up well I was just 19 and um, I was about to go to Germany for three uh, months to work because I was on a sort of gap year and uh, because I was about to study uh, languages at university, I was uh, going out to Hamburg to work for three months. So on the game you mentioned, the World Cup quarterfinal, I was actually watching on TV in a room full of Germans and as the only Englishman, I was quite perky when England <laughs> went 2-0 up and uh, a bit less perky at the final whistle. Though, um, because they were all very, it was working in a hospital and because they were all very nice um, doctors and nurses and health workers they were um, they were not too unkind to me um, it wasn't a great crop I, I imagine that maybe the magazine and other issues had featured some of the other players because as you say Martin Peters was really the only one of those four who played regularly Jack Charlton had been phased out by Brian LeBone the, the Everton centre-half um, and in Hughes I think I think hardly got a game at all. He, he was, I think, the youngest player in the squad at that time. 
um, became a regular, but of course, because England then failed to qualify in 74 and 78, didn't, uh, didn't ever play at the finals. And um, the faith which uh, Alf Ramsey and the rest of us had in Peter Benetta, as you say, proved uh, rather unfortunately to be um, over-optimistic. Um, but Germany, I, I was always interested in German football, partly because it was one of the languages I studied. And I used to get, I had a pen friend over in Munich who used to send me their marvellous uh, Kicker magazine, mm. which is a brilliant football magazine that still comes out twice a week. Um, and uh, Germany, uh, although they'd been beaten in 66, had then done very well in, in 68 European Championship and were really, really coming to uh, their peak uh, around about 70, 72, 74. Um, Beckenbauer and up front, not only Geert Muller, but Uwe Zeller, who's still there from 66, and the two of whom, of course, got crucial goals in the um, in the quarterfinal. So it was a, it was a time for a great time for German football, mm. um, although they lost the the epic semi final against Italy, but the four three game, if you remember. Um, but it, it was quite a good time to be in in Germany, despite the disappointment of the quarterfinal. So before we go into the next page, I just want to point out again that Gordon Banks went down with food poisoning and that's why he couldn't play. Because Yes, I mean, a suspicion. The uh, the conspiracy theorists, of course, felt that because England felt they had quite a rough time overall in Mexico and that the locals were against them, um, Ramsey didn't help because, of course, his, his media relations and his sort of diplomacy was pretty terrible overall and made no effort effort at all to uh, to integrate with the local people or say nice things about Mexico or Mexican food or anything. Um, so the the, uh, the Mexicans were very much on our side mm. um, uh, very much very happy to see see the Germans come through and, and there were rumors never substantiated in any way that, that somebody might have slipped something into uh, into Gordon Banks's food um, which, which caused him to to miss out but the problem, as you say, that I, I don't think um, that, that Benetti had, had played at all before that because there was the last group game was almost a, a dead game and they probably needed just a draw, I think, against Czechoslovakia. So he did make one or two changes, like Jack Charlton, for instance, got a game. But um, Benetti, as as Alf says, um, had had just not had that many games at international level, and it, and it was pretty tough for him to be thrown into that one. Yeah, so I'm going to present an, a different theory as to the food poisoning thing, and it's based on the advert on the next page. So let's have a look at this. So the advert shows a blank white photo of some of the England players, um, but the heading reads, What happens if foreign food gives them a bellyache? Yeah. The advert continues, It's a risk no team manager will take in a foreign country. Every mouthful the British boys eat will be vetted by the team's doctor. To make sure each meal fits into the carefully planned diet they must follow. They'll take the essential food with them from Britain. And a large part will come from Findus because there are no fresher foods. So basically I think Findus has poisoned Gordon Banks. So there you go. There's a new theory for you. It's there in black and white. Yes, should probably be a bit careful about what we say about them. But um, at, at least, yes, they didn't. Unfortunately, they, they picked out Hughes and Moore and Paul and Charlton for the photos. They didn't. They didn't pick Gordon 
experts. I'm not quite sure either how the doctor was supposed to vet every mouthful that they ate, but um, yeah. <laughs> clearly something went wrong at some stage. Yeah, I couldn't believe it just after reading the other one about um, Gordon, but and then this pops up and it's like that's a, that's an omen. That's a definite omen. So on to pages 17 to 21. This is the What's What in Football, and it's the A to Z, so it's obviously starting way. I'm not going to go through um, much of them, but um, the likes of Aberdeen, Airdrie, Aldershot, Ajax, Broth, Arsenal and Aston Villa are just some of the teams included. It mentions the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, and it says it's possibly the prototype of soccer grounds of the future, an indoor air-conditioned arena which cost about £15 million and holds £66,000. Now, £15 million back then is a lot of money. Um, yeah, I, I picked out that Astrodome. Actually, I mean, that's quite a nice feature. They, uh, they're obviously going to run it for a lot of weeks over the summer. And uh, uh, it was almost like a sort of mini encyclopedia of football, mm-hmm. everything from Amateur Cup to Arbroath through Argentina and Arsenal and Astrodome. Yeah. And um, I, I thought, reading that, that it was a little bit surprising that um, that this in some ways that that Houston Astrodome did appear in some ways to be the sort of um, the, the stadium of the future at, at least for some clubs or at some level um, indoors but uh, fully air conditioned and mm. stuff and holding 66,000 um, but it just didn't didn't quite seem to take off I suspect there are probably a few in the similar in the states but um, hasn't really taken off for, for football in the same way yeah I guess it's um, you know 50 years later it's about right, actually. I mean, you've got the the stadiums in Qatar for the World Cup are probably going to be that sort of thing, you know. I think they're definitely air-conditioned. I think they have to be over there. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I love the fact that it, it mentions the Athenian League, um, which um, mm. is described as one of England's strongest amateur competitions centred around London and the home counties. So I like that they got a mention. Um, the Abroth one obviously mentions the 36-0 victory against Bon Accord. I think whenever you mention the broth, you have to mention that. It's it's part of the law. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's quite an interesting wee thing that you could build up and, you know, just have something to read through. Um, it mentions Australia, Austria, Air United and Azteca Stadium. So I, I don't know, was there anything that jumped out to anybody else from, from those pages? The, the, uh, actually, the amateurs and the amateur cup, because of course this is 1970, and within four years, um, amateurism had actually been abolished officially. Um, everybody, you know, could be paid if you could afford to pay them, and and the amateur cup was no more. So I, I assume it was 74 off the top of my head that was the last ever they put a picture of one of the amateur cup finals there. Uh, which even in, at that time could attract uh, some pretty big crowds. I mean, earlier in the in the fifties, had, had often attracted a hundred thousand a full mm-hmm. house at Wembley. Um, but but within four years, you know, the the amateur cup would be no more, and and we just ended up with this sort of modern equivalent of the FA Vars, um, for which I'm never quite sure exactly what the what the qualification is. Uh, mm-hmm. The FA Trophy as a sort of senior non-league trophy, and then the then the Vars for the the much smaller teams who get a day out at Wembley but I, I don't think at the time that this appeared although everybody knew about so-called shamateurism and the fact that the leading amateur players were uh, quite clearly getting money in their boots yeah. um, uh, so much so that some of them found it uh, not worthwhile actually turning professional because if they had a job and they were getting 
small amounts even from two two matches and a bit of training a, a week it simply wasn't worth their while but um, that 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 would all disappear within within four years of this article appearing mm. okay we'll, we'll jump on a few there was a few things i was going to look at but let's jump on to the main attraction here which is page 23 and it's headed orient the leads of leighton so shoot spotlight one of the promoted clubs in this case leighton orient um although did, at this point, were they just Orient? Did you say they were just Orient? Actually, yes, okay. yes. Um, of of Leighton, still playing in Leighton, but still actually Orient. Okay, so so they had recently been promoted from the third division, and it says squash between Tottenham and West Ham. Orient have always been Lon- East London's poor relations, but last season could have heralded a new era down Brisbane Road. Manager Jimmy Bloomfield bought experience and produced youngsters of sparkling potential as they swept to promotion to the second division. Jimmy says, My ambition for Orient in the 70s is that we should become not only a first division club, but an established and respected member of that elite league. Jimmy likens Orient's journey to that of Leeds United in the early 60s before their rise in the game. Um, Orient captain Terry Man, Man, now is it Mancini or Mancini? What would it have been? Mancini, this? I think. Mancini. Yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, it, it, no great Italian. Uh, wasn't very, very much a, a Cockney rather than Italian himself. So mm. always said Mancini. Yeah. So, so he says on manager Bloomfield, I have never known a manager who remains so in touch with the players. He keeps telling us what a good side we are, and gradually we have come to believe in him and ourselves. Some of the players mentioned include Mick Jones, goalkeeper Ray Goddard. Barry Dyson, Peter Brabrook, Mark Lazarus, who I think you mentioned earlier on, didn't you? Um, who's pictured in the f- one of the photos? Now, just on on that is the BFC. Is that is that Blackpool, the the team with the BFC on there? Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. The article finishes off by asking whether Orient can afford to hold on to their bright young players and manager. Tommy Taylor, Dennis Rolfe, and Barry Fairbrother are just three of those that are mentioned. Uh, so just looking at those, Tommy Taylor joined West Ham this same year and returned to Orient in 79 and he would later manage the O's between 96 and 2001. So I assume Tommy Taylor is well thought of and well remembered at Orient. Yes, I mean the answers to the questions are that uh, they couldn't hold on to their best players because clubs like Orient sadly never do hold on to their best players and uh, it's a good job they put a question mark after the leads of Leighton because... They didn't become anything like. Um, uh, it was a very, it was a great season, and they were champions of the uh, third division ahead of uh, Luton Town, who had a very good team with Malcolm McDonald, and um, uh, obviously got got much better crowds. As, as Jimmy was saying there, they got the crowds up to about eleven thousand, which was quite good for them. It, it was a sort of classic mixture, almost the cliche of mixture of young players like the ones you've mentioned, and um, the more experienced ones like the. Both happened to be wingers, Mark Lazarus, who, who uh, was in his second spell at the club, and, and Peter Braybrook, who had played for England as long ago as 1958 World Cup, uh, before West Ham and, and Chelsea. Um, so it was a very enjoyable season. Um, and it wasn't, although it sounds a bit silly now to say whether they're going to emulate Leeds, uh, I mean, he wasn't far wrong in saying that they could have got to the first division. Um, Jimmy left quite soon afterwards. What happened was that... Um, the following season, Orient actually had a, a pretty terrible season in the second division um, because they'd gone up on the strength of a very good defence and a, a pretty moderate attack. And of course, what happens when you do that and get promoted 
is that the better teams still get through your very solid defence, but your attack doesn't score enough goals. And they got, I think, 29 goals in 42 games, which was the joint lowest in the country. Mm. And it was a very depressing season. There were endless goalless draws and 1-0 home defeats and 1-1 draws. And it was just quite depressing. And so the attendances dropped off again very quickly. Um, but within... So, uh, yeah, Leicester, then the following season, while Orient were having this very miserable season, Leicester won the second division championship and their manager, Frank O'Farrell, was uh, taken by Manchester United. Um, so Leicester needed a manager, and on the basis, really, of what Jimmy had done uh, in getting Orient promoted, and the fact that he was a, he was a very bright man, he'd always been very respected as a, a sort of ball-playing inside forward in his time at, at Arsenal, most notably, uh, he got the Leicester City job. And uh, so was immediately a first division manager and did very well with them, had a, had a very good team there, took Dennis Rove, one of the one of the young players mentioned there, um, and Orient got George Petchy as manager, who'd been coach at Crystal Palace, and within uh, what was it, 1974. So within four years of this uh, article, uh, Orient went into their final game of the season, needing to beat Aston Villa to get promoted to the top division, which would have been for only the second time in their history. Um, and uh, Villa got a penalty and scored, took the lead, and it ended up as a one-one draw. And Orient have never, ever got anywhere near, again, um, promotion to the top division. And, of course, quite recently went out of the Football League altogether. So that was a, that was a sort of uh, crucial moment, one of those sliding doors moments that, that happened in football. And it, it was pretty much all the way down from there on. Um, and I think he was exaggerating the potential of the, of the club a little bit because, as with any, you know, in, in Glasgow and really any big city, you know, if you're up against very well-established big clubs, you're going to uh, find it very difficult to attract the attendances and, and the support, and therefore the, the, the even the owners with the financial resources and so on. So Orient, basically surrounded by Arsenal, Tottenham and West Ham. Um, a little bit of a source of irritation to some of us that uh, I could have been grown up as a supporter of Arsenal or Tottenham or West Ham or any other of the big London clubs, but uh, was firmly told that our family club was Leighton Orient <laughs> at the time. Um, and it's, you know, it's really been a struggle. I mean, that, that season, crowds of 11,000 were regarded as really good. Um, and they've never in their history had an average crowd of more than about 16, 17,000. And there have been days, I, I once went to a second division game there, when they were admittedly virtually bottom of the second division, um, played at home to Middlesbrough, and the, the attendance was 2,200 for a second division game in English football, which is, you know, in a, in a league which is now regarded as one of the biggest leagues in Europe, never mind um, anywhere else. So they, they've always had that problem, and um, it, it's really put a, a bit of a limit on, on the ambition. We know we've seen clubs like, I suppose, Wimbledon are probably the best example, certainly in London, of clubs who, who go through the divisions and um, but when, when Orient actually did it in 1962 um, when fortunately I was old enough to, to go regularly uh, they weren't really ever going to survive in the top division they didn't have the money to strengthen the team and, and those other clubs who got up there Northampton at that time oh the year that Orient should have gone up the one I mentioned 1974 um, the club who went up instead were Carlisle United 
who, of mm. course, did exactly the same, lasted one season and came down. Um, Northampton Town, around about that time, went up um, earlier in the 60s, went up very quickly and came down almost as quickly. Um, if you remember Swindon more recently getting into the Premier League, um, those clubs just can't can't cut it at that level, unfortunately. And uh, so it's always going to be a struggle. Um, some of those places like, like Swindon and Northampton at least have got their own, more of their own community and, and aren't, aren't quite surrounded by so many big clubs. But that, that's always going to be the, the struggle for Orient, sadly. Hmm. Yeah, well, Andy and I know where you're coming from there, Steve. Andy and I up here in Scotland are both Claybank supporters. And uh, Claybank are obviously in relative terms on the doorstep of Celtic and Rangers. And it always uh, sort of inhibited Claybank's attendances. Over, over the years, you get a lot of people from the town going to see Celtic or Rangers. And again, the years that we got into the, the Premier League, uh, in Scotland again, we would come straight back, straight back down, and didn't have the attendances, didn't have the money, weren't able to strengthen the, the team to any degree. So uh, we're aware of that. You know, being a small club in the shadow of much bigger, much more uh, attractive uh, football football clubs. Yeah, same old story. And and unfortunately, I think in England, and I don't know about Scotland as well, but in England, the gap is probably getting worse. Um, you know, Orient, Orient. Uh, you may know had a, had one uh, awful spell under a, a, an Italian owner who almost ground the club into the dust. And the time that we did go out of the, the football league altogether, fortunately got back quite quickly within two years. And the new owners who are very good, um, although the two main men are based in America, one of them is a, a lot an Englishman and a long-term Orient fan. And and you know they talk about becoming an established League One club, i.e. the third third tier of English football and maybe getting back into the championship. But even in the champion, you know, you're talking at the moment about a, a ground with a capacity of 9,000. Um, and you're looking at the sort of teams who come down from the Premier League into, into the championship and the sort of crowds they've got and resources they've got. I mean, we could see Newcastle United next season in the championship. Um, a team like Orient are not going to compete with that in, 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 in any way. Um, so they are, I think, a lot of clubs at Orient's level are becoming a bit more realistic about what they can achieve. And, and I've said several times about these books, I write about the clubs in different areas. One of the, one of the conclusions and the themes, though it's a bit, a bit sad in a way, is that essentially the big clubs do stay big and the small clubs do stay small. And while they'll always have their great days, especially in the cup competitions and so on, and they can get up to a certain level, um, they're not going to stay there all that long. The, the West Midlands I've just done um, is a good example because Aston Villa and Wolves and West Brom will always be the big clubs there. And the, the smaller clubs who are in that book, like Warsaw and Shrewsbury and Burton and Hereford, who are now out of the league altogether, they, they all had their moments. They've all played in the second tier of English football. But they all, they all got up there on pretty small crowds compared to all the rest. And uh, I've, I've always thought that, you know, attendance figures are a, are a gauge in, in, in some way as, as to, to just how far your team can progress. Um, and and they, they tend to return to a, a sort of level at, at which really they belong. There's a question I'd, I'd like to ask you. What would your favourite 
season have been? Would it have been winning the, the third division? Would it have been almost getting into the, the first division? Or would it have maybe come coming back into the league? What what would your favourite season? I've, I've always said, because I, I was lucky enough to be there, I was only uh, 11 years old, but the season we did actually get into the first division, right. along with, it's 1961-62, um, along with Liverpool, I don't know whatever happened to them, but we went up with Liverpool and then went out different ways. Um, and in fact, the funny thing about most of Orient's promotion seasons, there'd probably been about five, I think, in my lifetime, uh, is that it frequently follows a very bad season. And this one, that one was typical in 1962. They'd had a, a bad season the year before. And then Astonishingly, in retrospect, they got Johnny Carey as manager. Well, Johnny Carey had just been manager of Everton. He'd taken them to fifth in the first division. But but Everton at that time, who were clearly the big team on Merseyside ahead of Liverpool, uh, Everton thought fifth place wasn't good enough for them. So they sacked him, um, famously in the back of a taxi in, in London, uh, which is why Everton supporters the, the still uh, talk about sending a taxi for the manager. Poor old Rafa Benitez had just had a taxi sent for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Johnny Carey was, was I mean, the, the highest profile manager oriented had, had ever had. Um, and with no real additions to the squad, got them promoted along with Liverpool. They were, they were second uh, almost the whole of the season until literally the last week of it when Sunderland suddenly got ahead of them on goal difference. And uh, that very last day uh, was the day when Orient had to win at home to Bury and Sunderland were playing away to Swansea who fortunately uh, needed to win as well because they were in a relegation fight. And it was one of those days when um, we had what in those days were called transistor radios, which you could take everywhere with you. Amazing, uh, amazing invention. And so there were a lot of people at uh, the Orient game with transistor radios and the BBC did commentary of the Sunderland-Swansea game. So we were able to hear there was one of those great moments when a roar goes around the ground, which tells you that something's happening at the other game. And Swansea had equalised against Sunderland. And so uh, Orient, by fairly comfortably beating Berry, got up by, by two goals to nil. And as often happens, actually, with a, a newly promoted club, had an amazing start. I mean, in, in the month of September, in, in the first division, we beat uh, West Ham, our local rivals, then Manchester United, and then Everton, who were the champions that season. Uh, actually, Everton's biggest defeat of the season, 3-0 at Brisbane Road. Um but that didn't last. And of course, 62-63, this season was the season of the great freeze in England as on, on Scotland as well, I'm sure. Um, and with the disruptions of fixtures and the fact that they just didn't really have the money to strengthen the squad and just left it too late, um, it, it all fell apart. But the mistake, really, Johnny Carey's one mistake was just not strengthening the team. You know, it, it was the thing we... We hear maybe a bit less these days because teams going up to the Premier League certainly realise they've got to spend some money. But he was one of those who said, oh, these lads have got us promotion, you know, let's give them a chance. And and by the time they realised they really weren't good enough for the first division, it was it was too late. But um, that that was that was the, the greatest season. The 69-70 promotion, say, was very, was very entertaining. Um, and coming back from to the Football League was, was very important because... Um, there were all sorts of complications, like if you stay out of the Football League for three years, you, you lose your academy status and you've lost a lot of the young players and stuff. Um, so it was very important to to get back. 
Um, but as soon as that happened and we've got promotion, of course, we had the tragedy of um, Justin Edinburgh's passing. Um, and that made the, the first season in the, in the league very difficult. Um, and now, the, the current situation, we've literally had the last four league games postponed uh, because the opposition in each time has, has been unable to get a team out, allegedly. Um, so we're, we're very frustrated and played fewer games than any other team in the league and are just desperate to um, to get going again. Yeah, well, good luck to them. We'll be, certainly, I, I have a very good friend from university who's uh, an, an Orient supporter as well. So... I've always had, I've had a soft spot for them over the years because of that. So and a lot of people do, which is very nice. I mean, I've never uh, I've never come across anyone who says, "Oh, Lake Norwich, oh, they're a horrible club," or anything yeah. like that. And a lot of people, genuine, I think, genuine, a lot of Tottenham and West Ham supporters who would go down there occasionally regard them as their second team, which is one of the one of the benefits of, of being a smaller club in a big city, I guess. Hmm. So we're going to jump out the magazine, okay, and we're going to do a focus on yourself Steve so that you know it likes in the old magazines they would have a player where there'd be a focus on a bunch of questions so I'm just going to ask you some questions and if you can just give me the answers uh, full name Stephen Richard Tongue where was your birthplace Walthamstow East London not very far from Lake Norrient ok what was your first car it was a Ford Fiesta do you remember the colour red ok Lake Norrient colours who is your favourite player? Current or ever? Ever. Uh, Late Norwich's greatest goal scorer, Tommy Johnston, who in the first season that I started going regularly had a run of 18 goals in 10 games, was inevitably, was top scorer in the country that season, 57-58, uh, was inevitably sold, but fortunately uh, came back. Ironically, he was sold to uh, Blackbird Rovers and Johnny Carey and Johnny Carey didn't really fancy him um, but he came back to Orient and had two more seasons and is still the only player to have scored more than 100 goals for the O's the great Tommy Johnston who now has a stand named after him at the ground Brilliant OK, th- this next question is a given favourite team? That's a late Norrient <laughs> What's your most memorable match? <sighs> I've been lucky enough to do probably half a dozen World Cup finals, uh, the first of which was not as a reporter, but as a uh, spectator. My 15th birthday present was a ticket to every game at Wembley in the 66 World Cup. I think it was amazing how easy it was to get it. I think my dad just sent off a postal order to the FA, basically, and this this block of tickets came back. It wasn't quite like um, going online the moment they were available or anything these days. Um, so I was lucky enough to be at Wembley the day England beat West Germany. Um, but when I was asked this very recently, I had to say that the Orient very game to actually get into the top division um, with beating Manchester United in second place, uh, Orient won Manchester United nil was a, a pretty good day as well. Good stuff. Um, what's been your biggest thrill? So that's just in your life. It could be anything. Oh my goodness. Um I think just being able to, as a reporter, um, to go to all these great places at uh, at somebody else's expense, basically, to to watch football. I think that a, a lot of journalists may, may be a, come a bit blasé about that, especially after a while. But um, 
there are many countries I've been to, Mexico and Australia and places that I can't imagine I would ever have got to if it wasn't for football. Okay. And on the flip side, what's been your biggest disappointment? I would guess because the Orient are so important um, that that period uh, under the mad Italian owner when they actually dropped out of the, the football league would uh, would have probably to be it. Mm-hmm. And you touched on all the countries that you've been uh, as a journalist. What's the best country that you've visited? Uh, those two I mentioned were very interesting. Australia, I went to Australia for the Sydney Olympic Games um, and Mexico two years running because England did a tour before the 1986 World Cup, which I also covered. But my actual favourite is Italy. And um, doing the Italian World Cup in 1990, partly because I was on a Sunday paper, which meant you were effectively employed about three days a week um, and just traipsing around Italy uh, was probably the best taken over all the best six weeks of my life. Okay, this next one may be related. What's your favourite food? Oh, I hope that was coming. Um, yes, I think a bit, a bit of pasta. Mm. Very, very happy with a bit of pasta. Okay, miscellaneous like. So give, give me a couple of things that you like to do. Uh, well, bizarrely, I'm, I'm still playing. Uh, walking football has become my mm. new passion. Um, and... Actually, representing Lake Norriot. I always right. hoped I'd do it when I was about 17 years old, perhaps. But uh, at a slightly older age, I'm able to pull on a Lake Norriot shirt and regularly represent the walking football team. For anyone who doesn't know, walking football is uh, is really catching on. Uh, everywhere we go, we, we uh, hear about new clubs and, and more people taking it up. It, it's basically a sort of over 50s sport or over 40s for women. And, and women are increasingly attracted to it as well. And... Um, I think a lot of people like me uh, basically stopped playing running football, actual football, real football, um, and I'd stopped for a long time until I discovered walking football um, in my 60s, and uh, I've got terrific pleasure from it. And, and it's been increasingly uh, organised at quite a high level. They're, they've actually played international matches now, and I'm sure it won't be long before there are international tournaments and ever. So that, that's been... Um, very enjoyable in, in the last few years. Okay. Um, miscellaneous dislikes or some, give me something that drives you up the wall. I'm, I'm getting a bit old for, for disliking stuff. I kind of, uh, my age now, I just sort of let it wash over me. I mean, um, we probably won't want to go into politics and government and so on, but there might be a few things there that irritate me a bit. But uh, I, honestly, at this age, I, I just try to let these things wash over me and uh, and stay calm. Fair enough, fair enough. What's your favourite TV show of all time? Oh, goodness. Um, every, every one of these questions, I sort of start with thinking about football. And so <laughs> uh, you, I should probably pay a bit of homage to Match of the Day, which mm. um, started when I was 13 years old and could only be seen on BBC Two in London with a very small audience and has sort of grown since then. Um, more recently, uh, I, I like very much like some of the um, some of the comedy series like Frasier. Okay, favourite singers? So a couple of singers. Favourite singers? I think, I mean, maybe everybody thinks they grew up in the best time for music, but if you grew up as a child of the 60s, and sort of follow the Beatles and Stones and all the rest. You, I think, you're entitled to say that you you grew up in the best time. Um, 
the Beatles had their first hit in literally the month that I went to senior school when I was 11 years old. And I think they they um, they disbanded in the almost the month when I finished senior school. So that was a that was a pretty good time to be growing up. And although uh, tragically I didn't ever see them, I did manage to see the Stones two or three times uh, quite early on. Uh, and really, all that sixties my my music station is one of those stations that calls itself gold and just plays old records and. <laughs> That will always be uh, the radio. Will always be tuned to that. Brilliant. Who's your best friend? Crumbs. Um, I've actually ended up staying in touch with quite a few from school. Again, I'm sorry if every question comes back to Lake Norris, <laughs> but there must be half a dozen from my. I went to school in Leighton, and there must be half a dozen of us who still go to Orient pretty much every week. Uh, one of whom I went to Stoke with for the FA Cup last weekend. Um, and so we do tend to to meet up there uh, and have that that uh, in common. And I think when you've supported a club like Orient for for that long, you you tend to have the same sort of attitude to football and to life. And you realise that life will not be a bed of roses, and there will be disappointments along the way, but that uh, there will be the occasion of good day as well. Yeah. So, uh, really, any of any of those half a dozen who I who I still see and hope I'll see this Saturday at Orient against Port Vale. Good stuff. Okay, final question here: Which person in the world would you most like to meet? I've often thought. I, I mean, I've been lucky enough as a journalist. Of course, one of the things is you you do get to meet some some pretty interesting people. I've, I've interviewed Pele and George Best, who were both good fun. Fortunately. I, I often think never meet your heroes is not a bad, not a bad uh, motto because they can, I know, be a terrific disappointment if you actually get to meet them in the flesh. But I think from what I've seen and, and heard a lot of him and read interviews and stuff that Paul McCartney would be, he just seems a decent guy. And uh, I think that for once it's not a football answer, but that uh, support would, uh, would be the number one. Excellent. Okay, that's the the end of the questions. But just on that, have, have you seen the Get Back documentary? Yes, brilliant. I I, yes, I, I, I just watched it uh, last week and it was absolutely superb. And I, I I said on Twitter that I think I've I've become a bit of a man crush on Paul McCartney after that because I think he just looked fantastic and he came across really well in that. Um, yeah, so. no, he has, and, and to say, I think a very, a very decent man, given that, that you know all the astonishing things that have happened to him and the, the wealth that's come to him. Mm-hmm. And I, I do appreciate that. Okay, Tom, over to you. Yeah, well, just on Paul McCartney, it's just how happy he looks when he realizes the police are on the roof. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Delighted that he's, he's he's managed to get upset people. Uh, so, uh, Steve, if you can tell us a wee bit then about your about your latest uh, book, uh, Tough Wars uh, in the Midlands. Yeah, it, it started with, um, it, it was really a, a, a book about London history. So I did the London clubs because despite, as I said, spending a few years in the Midlands when I was very young, um, I have lived in London most of my life. And so I thought I was writing about, you know, they, they say you should always write about things that you know and, I thought if I know anything about anything these years, it's probably London football. Um, so, and the thing about 
about that was it, it's not just uh, a history of the clubs, but it was everything else that was going on in London, like the formation of the Football Association and the FA Cup and things starting and two lots of Olympic Games and a World Cup and so on. Um, and it, because it did, it did pretty well, um, they reprinted quite, quite quickly. Um, the idea came to write about other areas. And so the, the Northwest, although we actually called it Lancashire, um, the Northwest with the Merseyside clubs and the Manchester clubs and the, the historically very other, very important other clubs like Blackburn and Rovers and Preston had been huge in the, in the early days. Uh, that that was a an easy one to write. It was almost the, the northwest. There was almost too too many clubs in it, which is why the third one that that's recently come out is is called the West Midlands and not just the whole of the Midlands. Um, so we've ignored the East Midlands clubs like Leicester and Nottingham Forest and Derby and so on. Um, because if you one of the things I've always been very keen on is to give some of the smaller clubs, perhaps with my Orient background, um, plenty of uh, plenty of coverage as well as the the bigger ones because they've all got their own stories to tell and their own little rivalries. Um, so that we did the West Midlands. Um, again, as I said a little bit earlier, um, similar story to London. I mean, one of the things that, that came out of the London book was that almost, well, over 100 years ago, the, the big clubs in London were undoubtedly Arsenal, Chelsea and Tottenham. And, you know, 100 years on, apart from a few West Ham supporters and the fact that they are having a, a decent season, I think everyone would still agree that the three big clubs in London are Arsenal, Chelsea and Tottenham. Um, that was the point I was making about the big clubs staying big. And and so it has been the case in, in the West Midlands with Villa, uh, Villa, West Brom and Wolves have always been a little bit above Birmingham, although the biggest rivalry in many ways um, has been Villa and Birmingham just because they're so physically close together. Um, Birmingham have always been struggling to keep up with with Villa. Um, so, uh, yeah, they've, they've always done quite well. And literally today, uh, as you're talking to me, um, I've agreed to do a, a fourth one about Yorkshire, which is why the books in front of me are, are say, things like Huddersfield Town, Leeds United, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, the history of Sheffield football and so on. Um, and that, that's just about right. What, what you like ideally for these books is to have about four sort of big clubs or historically important clubs like Leeds and Huddersfield and the Sheffield clubs. And then smaller ones like Rotherham and Doncaster and Barnsley, who uh, I need to learn a lot about before I write about them. And so where does it, where does it stop? Steve, are you going? Well, I might be struggling after that. I mean, the other, I tell you, one thing I have done actually, um, Middlesbrough is technically in Yorkshire. Uh, but I've not included them in this book because if there is one more to be done, I think it should be the northeast of England, where at least you've got three big clubs and big rivals in, in Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough. Um, I actually put out a, a, a question on one of the Facebook pages of the, the football historian saying, you know, do people think of Middlesbrough as a Yorkshire club? And although one or two uh, purists said, of course, Middlesbrough is in Yorkshire, um, which it is technically, it's literally right on the northern border. The, the River Tees is almost a boundary. Um, uh, people, I think, agreed with me that that in terms of, sort of football culture, Middlesbrough are really a North East England team, uh, along with Newcastle and Sunderland. So it, it may be that uh, it may be that that becomes a final one. But I, I tend to take. I always ask for two years to do each of them, uh, and so it will be. Um, I'm only really just starting on Yorkshire, so who knows where we'll where we'll end up. 
charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share Group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. So we're back into the magazine and we are on pages 24 and 25 and this is a centre page team photo. It's a colour team photo of Nottingham Forest and it says Shoot presents the Merry Men of Nottingham Forest. Uh, So it's red shirts with white shorts and red socks. The shirt has a large badge on it. It looks like it's been sewn on. It's like a patch. The shirt also has a white collar and cuff with thin red stripes on them, which I quite like. And the socks have a white stripe at the top as well. Now, just one of the names I'm going to pick out is Bob McKinley, who's a Scot from Fife. And he's the club record appearance holder with a total of 684 games. So is there any of the, the names that jump out to you there? Any players? Yeah, I, I, we mentioned earlier Forrest had had a, a brilliant couple of seasons just before this, but they were now in a bit of decline. Um, just going along the back row, uh, Alan Hill, who I think was probably the reserve goalkeeper at that time, became a very important assistant to Brian Clough, um, especially when uh, Cloughy went back to Forrest. He was good old, always a good old Forrest man. Um, in the middle row is Ian, Sto- Ian he, he's listed as Ian Moore, although mm. a lot of the time he was known as Ian Story Moore, uh, who Brian Clough, of course, famously paraded around the baseball ground as his new signing for Derby, except that the forms had actually be signed, which is why Ian Story Moore ended up as a Manchester United player rather than a, the Derby player. Um, Terry Hennessy, the old uh, Welsh international who played a lot of games in Wales next to him. Mm-hmm. And down in the front row, someone who was a, was a decent player but became uh, better known as a manager probably as John Barnwell, um, Wolves, and one mm-hmm. of those managers who, who tended to move around the Midlands quite a lot. Um, but uh, Wolves and Stoke and uh, and did a decent job for them. But just a shame that that, that Forest team, as I said by then, 
was was on the way down and I think it got relegated then within about two or three more years when went back down to the second division. Yeah. I seem to remember Henry Newton did he go to Everton? Is that Henry right? Newton, yeah. Uh, England international wing wing half, yes, yes. Mm. Um been there as well. Yeah. But yeah, again, nice simple strips. Yes, and um, obviously those those photos were almost always taken pre-season, which is why um, why they, they look quite nice and sunny, and why after two or three of the names, it has to say that actually they're not now with Forest anymore. So yeah. one of them, uh, the Peter Grummet, the goalkeeper, is now Sheffield Wednesday, and uh, somebody else I think had moved, moved on elsewhere as well. Hmm. So on the next couple of pages, it's sayings of the season. So this is shoots Peter Shepherd. And he looks back at some of the things said by players, managers and journalists over the season. So again, I'm going to pick a few out. And the first one is by Sports Writer of the Year, Hugh McIlvanny. And he's quoted in praise of Celtic's Jimmy Johnson, where he says, he gives the impression that he can beat three men in a telephone box. Um, which is a, a smashing wee thing to say. Next one, Bertie All takes a dig at Leeds United. He says, a good side, I'll give you that, but not as good as the Spurs side that did the double in the early 60s. They had inspiration, but this this Leeds team is a machine. So I mean, he is having a dig at them, but he also, you know, there's a bit of respect there for him as well. Um, Derby County boss Brian Clough was more positive about Leeds, saying Leeds United are the greatest side in Europe. The way I go on about them, you would think I'm some kind of unpaid public relations man. Uh, so yeah, there's that relationship between Brian Clough and Leeds United, which um, we know where that went. Um, now after being the next one is memories of George Best um, after being torn apart by Man United in the FA Cup Northampton Town's Ray Fairfax had this to say about George Best who scored six goals that day he says why oh why did it have to be me that marked him the only time I got close to him was when we went off at half time and full time if I had to play against such a man every week I would hang up my boots and quit the game I'm sure a lot of people felt like that after facing facing George Best in his prime. Uh, next one. Orient's getting a lot of airtime in this magazine. So, so I assumed you'd picked it out especially for me this time. <laughs> um, so it says, Orient solved the problem of lack of support by gaining promotion to the second division. As their manager, Jimmy Bloomfield, stated, I can say right now that we have no intention of selling any of our players unless it's in the best interest of the club. We need about 11,000 gates to break even and last season we increased our support from an average 3,500 to the 11,000 mark. Next season we hope to do much better. So quite a positive, I mean he seems quite positive about um, everything at the moment which is fair enough considering they've just won promotion. Plus, you know, there's not very many managers I guess that underplay things and say... um, you know, be quite negative. So I think that's that's pretty expected at that time. Yes, yes, no. I mean, he was he was um, more or less right. He may have exaggerated the three thousand five hundred, but it wouldn't have been all that much better than that the previous season. So they they did very well to get up to eleven thousand. But uh, unfortunately, as he says, and as I described, it was such a such a dull season. The next one that they they went down to about nine thousand and. Um, and, and struggled to get back up to that mark. Mm. And I, I would like to say a word about uh, Hugh McIlvanny as well, uh, one of you know the great sports yeah. writers of all time, who I was, you know, I was lucky enough to uh, spend some time with. Uh, actually, uh, um, went to his funeral as well. Um, 
and uh, clearly had uh, started in Scotland, uh, came down to England, and and was one of the the influent, most influential writers I remember uh, reading when I was young. I think my my dad always bought the Observer on a Sunday, and uh, one of the first football reporters who who I ever read, and, and clearly one of the greats. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm not I'm not sure if um, I'm thinking of William as well, but whenever I read to anything by them you just hear it in their voice mm. just yes wonderful in. wonderful voice yeah. yes I, I when I hear William um, interviewed about his novels it it, uh, it does make, put me in mind of you as well mm, yeah okay so let's move on a few there's a there's a focus on here Frank's bragging which um, I just there's a couple of the responses which I think are you know, sometimes on these, you get somebody and you think, was it was it worth actually interviewing them? <laughs> if you weren't a footballer, what would you be? And he says, no idea. Okay, next one. Who in the world would you most like to meet? Nobody in particular. I mean, it's like, what's what's the point? What's the point of this? Um, dislikes was shaving, losing, gardening and phony people. Gardening seems to be one that comes up a lot for footballers <laughs> back then. So I don't know what the problem is there. And food, the the obvious the the you know the trope for the focus on food is steak, but he's went for steak and fish. Obviously not at the same time. And biggest disappointment when Burra bought George Cannell and I was dropped from the team. Um, George Cannell, and I, I know he was a Scot. I think he maybe came from Cowdenbeath or something like that. Or maybe I'm thinking his brother. But yeah, it's. There's nothing really to pick out that's mind blowing or uh, anything like that. For I have a, I have a bit of sympathy because um, my first job after university as a full time journalist uh, was for a sports agency in London, which which did an awful lot of work for magazines like Shoot. And uh, this was a sort of questionnaire which we'd have been quite likely to have to ask some player to do. And I remember when I'd not been there very young, uh, very long at all, the the boss said. Uh, here's the number of the Chelsea training ground. I want you to ring Peter Osgood and get him to do one of these, and you can offer him five pounds. Uh, this was in 1973, and even in 1973, five pounds was not a lot of money to offer to an England footballer. And when I got through to it, it was, I mean, it was easy enough in those days just to ring the training ground and someone would pick up the phone and they get Peter Osgood for you. But uh, it was a pretty short conversation when I said it's five pounds. <laughs> Peter Osgood. Focus on Peter Osgood of Chelsea did not appear in shoot, <laughs> as I'm aware. Excellent. Um, j- jumping on a few pages, so we're at the vote for the season's most exciting player. So Shooter giving away a trophy for the most exciting player of the year in both England and Scotland, as judged by the readers. So there's a form at the bottom. I nominate as my player of the year and the space to put the nomination in, then your name and address. And there's also a, a space that you put an E or an S on it, depending on whether it's the Scottish vote or the English vote. Um, now I'm, I'm guessing because it says this is the last chance. That there must the previous weeks probably had the I haven't checked, but the previous weeks probably had these in them as well. So I guess you could nominate, even though it says don't, you could nominate for the same player more than once, or you could nominate for the Scottish and English ones. Now I didn't, I didn't check who the. Give me a quick second. I might be able to find... Um... I'll tell you who some candidates would have been because um, 
1970 was, of course, the first year of what I still call the Rothmans football yearbook, even though it's not done by not been done by Rothmans for many years. And they actually picked their sort of most exciting team of the season, um, which included the few. Uh, I mean, the most the ones that stood out for me. They picked the sort of four-two-four, quite an attacking team, which had George Best on one wing and Jimmy Johnston on the other wing. Yeah. Uh, and I would have thought they they would have been pretty big uh, uh, candidates. Although, funny enough, I think I think it's in this magazine. Uh, the, one of the letters uh, recommends Eddie Gray at, the, at Leeds United as as the most exciting. Uh, so he would have been in, in in with the shout as well. But mm. um, I think either George and Jimmy Johnston, I would have thought, have got quite a lot of votes. So I've got it. I've got it here. So you're spot on with Jimmy Johnson, who who won the Scottish one, the English one. We've spoke about a couple of times in the magazine, and he replaced Gordon Banks in Mexico. So it was Peter Benetti that won it. Um, right. Eddie Gray was third. Most exciting player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eddie Gray was third, and Terry Cooper, I think, maybe was second. Um, yeah, yeah. He got in the Rothmans team. David Hay got in the Rothmans team as as the right back. Yeah. So whether you can again, whether you can call the fullbacks. That mm. exciting, I suppose it was about the time when they uh, when they started getting getting forward. And Terry, Terry Cooper would have been a, quite an exciting player, I guess. Anyway. Mm. So yeah, so that that's who won it that season. So there we go. And there's a on the next page it's Shannon and Davies. Um, so it's about Mick Channing talking about a dual striker role with Ron Davies. Um, Martin Chivers had just been sold to Spurs, so. Um, his game had changed to it was freed up more to support Ron Davies um, and it, it just talks about how the, their understanding has developed as they've worked hard and played more with each other and at this point he's, he's not had uh, England caps but he has um, his eye not breaking into the squad for 1974 World Cup so a few years down the line but he would get his first cap in 72 and he got 46 in total scoring 21 goals which is some, some return that at international level, well, I suppose at any level, you know, almost um, one and two, isn't it? We can't go past this double page spread, which is George at his best. I mean, it's it's two two pages, very colourful, very red. George Best, the, the got a full page colour photo on the right hand side where you know you spoke about how um, you know the favourite band was the Beatles, and that's he's got that sort of haircut as well, isn't it? He's got the sparkle in his eyes. It just you know it's it's very good looking man there um, the other photographs Ian Ewer um, Bobby Charlton and I think they've just scored against Coventry City by the looks of it and um, in the top one he's taking a man on obviously terrific appeal and great for this sort of magazine a real selling point I think he probably at some stage became a columnist for um, for one or two of them although he might have been for his ghostwriter he might have been a bit harder to track down than uh, some of the more reliable ones um, to get, actually get any words out of but i think where are we 69 70 i'm not going to say past his peak but didn't have many years left i think probably even by this time he was beginning to get a little bit delusion uh, disillusioned with some of it and i think didn't didn't really enjoy Franco Farrell very much. We saw the, the, the photo of uh, Wilf McGuinness as manager. He didn't really enjoy working with Wilf um, very much either. He'd been one of those who's very much under Matt Busby's spell, I think. And once once Busby moved on, 
Uh, a lot of them found it a lot harder. And Wilf McGuinness, having been, you know, very much of an age of some of these players, although a bit older than George, uh, found it very hard to impose the discipline on them, as often happens when you get an old teammate who, who then becomes coach or, or manager. And I think within, uh, what, by about Christmas 72, which was when Franco Farrell got the sack, um, it was all beginning to fall apart for, for United and, and George was just losing interest and missing training and um, probably drinking more as well. Um, and it was a bit sort of beginning at, at the end and, and by 74, of course, was, was the year when they actually got relegated to them. I mean, I, I say to young people now, yes, I remember Manchester United getting relegated and they, they think I'm naming them on. But it, it happened within, what, six years of them winning the European Cup. Mm. So you can see the appeal to the uh, the editors of the magazine like this. That mm. uh, a full colour a full colour page of, uh, of George Best was was likely to put on a, a few sales, probably especially among the um, among the female readership as well. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I was just going to say that I think I sort of thought we'd talked about him earlier on, but it was when we were talking about Jimmy Jimmy Greaves, Jimmy Greaves. and it's yeah, just the yeah, parallels so, to it. So it was, sad, um, you know, two real icons of the of the sixties. We think about, and by the time it got into even nineteen seventy, they were uh, they were beginning that that downward slope. Mm. And I mean, as you mentioned with Jimmy as well, we went and he played with smaller clubs as well, and but he went up to Scotland, played with Hibs, and that was a bit of a disaster, I think, generally. And um, I think I saw one of those games. We mm. had um, I was on local radio and. Um, well, local radio didn't start till 73, so it must have been after that. Um, we used to have meetings of all the sports editors from all the commercial stations in Britain, and we went up to the Edinburgh station, was it Radio 4th, mm. um, in, in Edinburgh, and and it coincided, we deliberately timed the meeting to coincide with a with the match that George was playing at, mm. um, at, at, uh, at Hibs and, and, and saw him up there. I actually, I actually also um, I do take every occasion possible to mention this. I I played both against him and with him, against him in a charity match at a little um, southern league ground called Welling, very near where I live. I turned out occasionally for the TV commentators eleven, although I was never a TV commentator. I claim as a radio commentator that I had some sort of um, some sort of qualification. Martin Tyler, who still does Sky, used to run the team, and he got me to play. Uh, I was always played at right back and George of course was on the left wing and spent most of the game nutmegging me <laughs> until I got a little bit fed up with this. I was quite appreciative of the fact that a lot of people had come to see George Best play but nobody had come to see Steve Tung play at right back. And so on one occasion I managed to close my legs at just the right time, nick the ball away. Uh, Martin Tyler always says, oh, I remember you doing that lap of honour when you tackled George <laughs> Best. It wasn't quite a lap of honour but it was... Um, Probably the best moment of my <laughs> my very ordinary football career. And then uh, the occasion I was lucky enough to play with him is about mid eighties, eighty four, eighty five. So he was uh, he was long retired. But um, the football league started their new competition for third and fourth division clubs, and they decided rather ambitiously to play the final at Wembley. But they were very worried about how many people were actually going to turn up. Although they were quite lucky in that Brentford got into the final, who, as I mentioned earlier, are of course are quite near Wembley, so there were a decent number of Brentford fans. 
but they played Wigan, who in that time uh, at that time were a very lowly, uh, quite new football league club. Were not expected to bring hardly any fans at all, and so they approached us as a local London radio station and said, "Could you get a team up uh, if we got an, an England? They call it something like an, an England eleven, or um, and so we had an LBC team, which included George Best, uh, Pat Jennings in goal." Um, various uh, other personalities who we've had. I, I think Rod Stewart was supposed to play, but I'm not sure he made it mm. because he's certainly not in any of the photos. But I was, um, I thought I'd better let George be captain rather than me. So George <laughs> led us out. And there's a photograph which got in one of the Sunday papers of um, George leading our team out next to Bobby Moore leading out the opposition, who also had uh, Bobby Charlton. I don't think they had Jeff Hurst. They, we, we had. Uh, Moore and Martin Peters and Bobby Charlton, but not Jeff Hurst. But um, so that was that was the day I played at Wembley. Brilliant. I think um, around about seventy nine, eighty is when he came to Hibs. Is that about right, Tom? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Was it that? Yeah, it's that late. Yeah, well, yeah. that makes sense. That, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. It'd be interesting to know which which game it was. But um, yeah, there, hmm. there were some many stories about him not turning up for games or turning up. A, yeah, a bit too worse for wear and things like that. I think there's a story about him partying with the the French rugby side in Edinburgh. I, I think that was the reason why you missed one of the games. He just basically partied with them and forgot about the football. But yeah, as you say, it's it's you know it's a cracking cracking photograph and certainly one for the mm. for the the also John the Bester action Meyer. picture there with the with the shirt outside the shorts, mm. which I'm sure a few managers would have disaprove of, but all all part of the image. Yeah. And I, I love um, I'm going to guess at Everton they're up against there. I, I don't know if it is. Or yeah, not. I think so. Yeah, um, yeah. But I just love that you can, you know, the Everton players got his back to his, but you can sort of just sense that there's a trepidation there. Yeah, that was it? how I felt when he ran at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant stuff. Um, just going to move on to the back page then. Bert Patrick. So it's um, Bert Patrick of Preston North End. Now again, this is this is one of the things I like about the magazines was lots of different teams were were covered. It wasn't always just the top teams and things like that. Um, which I, you know, as Tom says, we're Clay Bank supporters, and as, as you know, being a an Orient supporter, it's good when you get coverage of your team. Um, I, I don't really know where Preston where, where were Preston at this time were they. Uh, Preston had just gone down uh, with Villa in the um, yeah the season I yes yeah, season I mentioned mm. um, sensationally really the, the pair of them going down although Preston came straight back up but I'm I'm not sure that uh, Patrick even it was wasn't a name that meant anything to me at all I must confess and I'm yeah. not sure he played much of a part in them getting back up because I uh, according to the record books he went off to Barrow uh, for one season and then. Um, and then finished all together. But uh, no, as you say, I mean, a, a, the idea that a player like that could get a full... I hope someone got him a copy of the magazine. You know, <laughs> you'd like to think that he's still got a copy of it that he shows to his grandchildren and says, I was there one day. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's not a name that's going to live in the uh, in the memory of your average football fan all that long, mm. unfortunately. Yeah, as you say, I mean, 57 appearances he made for the club that I found out, um, and he was released in 1971, so the following year... He was released. Um, he joined Preston in '63 and made his debut in '65. So he was there a good few years, but mm. obviously he made just 57 appearances in what eight years or six years of being in the first team. 
why would that warrant him being in the back page of the leading or one of the leading football magazines at the time? It's it's crazy. But I will point out he was a Scottish defender as well, so um, ah. certainly not a player I really recognised or heard much of. So I've I've no idea what the criteria was or who, who would um, it shoot magazine would say let's get this person or this let's get that person. So I thought it was a good way to finish it. So thank you, listen, Steve, thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I hope you've enjoyed going through this. Um, so in terms of the, the your books, where, where can people get them? I, I think Pitch Publishing is the is the most recent one, is that right? Yes, Pitch Pitch have done all my books and uh, they do put out an awful lot of football books, uh, many of which are, are very decent quality and, uh, and, and reasonable value too. Um, they have a good link up with Waterstones, um, booksellers so any any um any waterstones near you will at least order the books if you um if they don't have them in stock you can always just mention turf wars and tongue and um, one of the benefits of having a rather odd surname is that um, is that it's easy to find and easy to look up and people tend to remember it a bit more um so they, they've been very enjoyable to do they're all available on amazon which i think means the the author gets about five pence for every book sold on amazon so uh, if you can find a Waterstones, I'd be ever so grateful if you've got it from there. Definitely. So what, what else are you involved in? You, you, I, I noticed that you have a agent. Is it an, would an agency be the right word for yeah, that? Yeah, that's really run by my daughter, Jo. Uh, it's called Tongue Tied Media, and she represents a lot of people, mainly um, media commentators, people like Dion Dublin, uh, Dean Ashton. Uh, but she also, she's very keen on women's football and she got into women's football just around the time it was beginning to take off uh, down here now as, as it is. So she actually represents a few uh, women's football players, um, including Leah Williamson at Arsenal, who's been captain of England recently and so on. Um, and she plays, she's on the board of women in football, which is um, an increasingly influential body as as. Uh, the FA in particular and football in general uh, takes a bit more account of uh, the fact that women make up 50% of the population and are now allowed to play football again after the FA banned them for about 50 years or whatever it was. Uh, so she's very active in that and uh, I, I don't play a, much of a role. My main role, I think, was to speak to the bank manager before we started <laughs> and um, say that I'd be some sort of guarantor. Uh, that's my most important role by far. Um, but she, uh, our Joe, does a does a very good job on that, and uh, and it's been very interesting for her actually. Mm. And so, uh, and I know you're on Twitter. Where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow? I'm uh, at Steve Tongue, which is pretty uh, unoriginal, but um, but finds me. Um, uh, I still present. I uh, do a bit of radio. I do uh, a program called the Orient Hour. Uh, which goes out every week, um, gets quite good um, cooperation from the club. I do present that once a month, uh, which is just from a, a local a local um, radio station in, in Essex. And um, occasional article for Backpass magazine, um, which is a sort of retro magazine that, that has a quite a devoted following from people of, of sort of a slightly older age group who... Love the sixties and seventies and all these all these periods sixties seventies eighties. So I've got to interview quite a lot of old uh, old London stars, who fortunately are always uh, always happy to talk and, um, and never mention the money as the as some of the, the more modern ones do, which is uh, which is a blessing. 
Excellent. Again, thank you very much. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Um, so thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah. Oh, I have. Great fun. Thanks ever so much for your time. Great stuff. And so just like to say a big thank you from from myself and f- for Tom, for being Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Andy. And as always, please follow the, the podcast um, on Twitter. It's shoottb underscore pod. Um, we also have an associated website as well where you can follow along with the magazines as well as you listen to it. So please take a time out for that. And Western Bartonshire Community Food Share is a, who, who we're in partnership with, a charity partner. So check out the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share as well. And so we hope you've enjoyed it. Until the next time. Let's shoot the breeze.